Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrapped SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And hi, I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Legup Health. Cool. What's been going on, Rick? Uh, not a whole lot. I'd love to hear your updates while I catch my breath. <laughs> uh, for the listener at home, Rick always does a bunch of pull-ups and push-ups right before we record, so he can't uh, can't breathe when we get started here. <laughs> <laughs> I've had the the hard time just sitting on my chair all day, but um, no, yeah, things lot, lot going on right now. Um, interns started this week, which we kind of talked about last week. I probably we don't need to dive into that too much because they started yesterday, so I'll have a lot more to say about it next week when we kind of have an opportunity to digest that a little bit. But in more immediate news, um, I've just been going on a shopping spree for my home office. I just got a new chair. It's my first nice office chair ever. Do you have one of those? Oh, yeah. Like one that you really like? Yeah. And I just ordered, I ordered Sable one, like after it was clear that quarantine was coming. Yeah. And she, and she loves me because of it. Nice. Yeah. I, I've always had like office chairs, but not, this is like, I got a steel case leap, which is like one of the very high, high end ones where you can like adjust every little thing. And I was kind of skeptical that it would matter, but it really, it, your your body is just in a position where like everything feels right. Your hands are just naturally on the keyboard. Uh, I didn't realize I'm pretty short. So like the seat pan normally is too deep on a chair. So I'm like, I'm like a little kid with my legs kind of not going straight down. They're like sticking out at a diagonal because my knees are too close. So anyway, I, I'm really happy with it. That's great. And you have a stand up desk now too, right? So you can adjust the height of the desk with the chair. Yeah, exactly. That's huge because I used to have a one of those keyboard monitor or keyboard trays, so that would lower my keyboard. Um, if if this were a normal desk, my keyboard would be way too high because there's not a tray. But I just make it like super low, and then I got these monitor stands, so the monitors are pretty high. I've, I'm just I pimped out my whole setup here. I'm feeling good about it. And and the your background looks much cleaner and <laughs> and intentional. Yeah, I used to have a bunch of dirty shoes in the frame. So yes, I did do something about that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. It's pretty ingenious what you did too. Oh yeah. I just switched them to the other side of the door. What a genius. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How about you? What's, what's going on with you? Um, well, the, probably the biggest thing I wanted to share was I got my first money in the bank uh, for leg up health. So awesome. I wasn't sure if it was going to get paid in May or June. Um, but yeah, I got my first transaction and it's kind of like the you know the old school days you would get a check and i guess frame it um now it's just like this one entry point on a bank account i guess i could do something with that yeah print it out and tape it to your wall <laughs> yeah, there you go <laughs> sable sable would love that if i did that <laughs> that's a great feeling though congrats on on having I, I guess for months now or for at least weeks it's been like milestones that are kind of like this you know you got certified or whatever and then people switch to you as the agent of record but actually having cash in the bank as soon as you see that you can start being like "Ooh, now let's make that number go up (laughs) totally totally so i have a couple updates today just from past episodes that i wanted to just touch on one is um is uh last time we were talking about analytics an episode or two ago and i uh, wasn't i was looking at google analytics and then um, i set up uh what was it? Hot jar as well. And I just discovered Heap. Um, are you familiar with Heap Analytics? I've like looked at their marketing site. I haven't actually used the product. 
Um, it integrates with the authentication, the no code authentication mm. that I'm using, which is called member stack. And it was super easy to, uh, to install. And so now I can see very specifically what users are doing what um, in the platform, which was a huge hole for me in, ter- in terms of understanding who's logging in, who hasn't logged in, um, you know, who, who's having trouble logging in, what are they doing when they log in, that kind of stuff. If I'm not mistaken, is Heap the one where they're, at least back in the day, I think their big value proposition was you don't have to predefine what you want to analyze. You can do that after the fact. Yeah, it starts collecting all of the um, actions, or I think they call them events, um, based on uh, what the HTML tags are. And then my my understanding, this is like just an assumption based on how I think it will work, is I can go in and name those events. Um, yeah. But that's great because, like, have you have you ever used Mixpanel or anything like that? Um, I never did. No. Okay. With the, this this information may be out of date, but when I've used stuff like this, you have to go into your product and define all the events, and then you can build funnels and track conversions and stuff like that. But then, if in the future you're like, oh, I really wonder about this other thing, you you can go in and add it, but then you don't have any of that historic data to analyze. Where with Heap, you can install it now, and then months from now, you can be like, I wonder what happened this whole time, and, yep. and run reports on that. That's that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, my main use right now is very simple. Like, Has this user logged in? When was the last time this user logged in? Those are That's my main question, mm-hmm. um, as I'm trying to get people to onboard. But uh, yeah, exactly. What's cool about it is everything's tracking now. So when I have more sophisticated questions, I can... I can answer them historically. Nice. Do you view this as something that will one day integrate with kind of the marketing stack where it's like all the way towards original sort like source of how they found your website? Or is it more just user tracking and there's kind of a different type of analytics for marketing? Um, you could, I, I think you could, probably could move up the funnel with this. I find um, Google Analytics and Hotjar to be perfectly fine for that. Um, so I'm using... I'm sort of piecemealing the tools, um, mm-hmm. if you will. So we'll see what actually happens. But um, yeah, I'm right now. It's it's very focused on knowing, like, for people who are identified users and logging in. Cool. Sounds good. Uh, let's see. The other update I had was on internships. Um, I wasn't sure if an internship was a good idea given our stage um, at Leg Up Health, um, but. I went ahead, you know, as I mentioned last time, I went ahead and moved forward with it already one week later. Man, it's, I'm so glad I did it because it's forcing me to answer some questions more, much more coherently than I otherwise would. And um, I actually do think that uh, we'll start moving on some things that I know I have to do at some point. Um, and I'll, I'll have, you know, those things that I, that I, will need probably come July or August when the internship's over will be progressed when they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and it's like super fulfilling to work with someone like, I, like, I don't know if it's like solving the solo founder loneliness issue to a degree, but like, it's just nice to talk to someone about the business um, and sort of, you know, even if it, even in this case, it's though, it's like one day a week, it's, there's some value in that. Anyway, yeah. I'm glad I, I'm glad I did it. That's great. That's good. It, the the I think the outcome you need to shoot for here is that even if her product or project isn't valuable, that the the experience is still valuable for you and for her. And it sounds like you're well on your way towards that. Totally, totally. Yeah, cool. Um, and then uh, the the other update I had from the last 
uh, previous episodes is I mentioned last week, I started, I opened the episode with hitting a roadblock with Legapel that was like the lowest low I've experienced in terms of my assumptions. Um, I broke through that this week and uh, it had to do with a, you know, a data source that was critical to have the source. Um, I had the, I had a, an output of the source that I couldn't attribute. Um, and as a result, I needed to, like I wasn't comfortable using that to solve the problem I had in the product um, without finding the source. And I spent a, a full week looking for the source without being able to find it again. And then I I found it and yay. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I also through the research found um, a, an experimental sort of tool that the Utah Department of Insurance has built. That's, um, a, you know, a great sort of, model for one thing that I want to build. And I got in touch with the Utah Department of Insurance. They were super responsive um, and fully transparent with the, you know, the public use files, the data sources. So I found it before I reached, you know, they got back to me, but they were so helpful in helping me find the same source again, that it gave me great. Um, I don't, you, you know, me with regulators, like, yeah, you, my, you my, hate, you hate departments of insurance. <laughs> I, I, I would say that I used to hate departments of insurance. <laughs> I've totally come around. Like this was a total, a great experience. And so I will, I want to do a shout out to the, the great people at the Utah department of insurance who have uh, totally changed my perspective on government regulators. Well, that, that might be the first shout out that's ever gone to a department of insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Positive one. That's for sure. Cool. So I'm curious, you said you spent a week on this. What, like, what are you actually doing during that time? Because I've, I've built my fair share of integrations, but it's always with a well-documented API where the other company wants you to build this. Like, what were you doing during this time? So I was reaching out to uh, other companies. So I, I mean, are you asking like how, once I realized I had this problem, how did I go about solving it? Yeah. Like, were you just, did you just Google stuff and click through oh, to page 100? Yes. Um, I, that's why I started with. Um, I finally started um, once I exhausted Googling. I started. Um, well, I should back up. These these data sources have to do with. Um, I'll explain this. So there's this thing called the the Affordable Care Marketplace, right? And so if you're in, depending on your state, and if you're in the U.S., um, the the you know the Affordable Care Act, which is passed by which was which most people know as Obamacare, went to an, into effect in 2014 and required every state to set up this what they called an exchange at the time. It's now branded marketplace um, that people can go to in, in the state to buy individually purchased health insurance. Some states, most states use healthcare.gov. Some states like California and New York uh, have their own st- state exchange or marketplace. Um, but, uh, you know, what, you know, for leg up health, one thing that we ultimately want to be able to do is, um, is, you know, show someone depending on their zip code, every plan available in that zip code. Um, so if you logged in today and said, Hey, I live in St. Louis, you, you did the downtown St. Louis zip code. Um, you would see a, your set of plans and, um, someone else you know, who's in California would log in and see, um, their set of plans. Now this is complicated in that every state has its own marketplace and, um, they, you know, some States use the federal marketplace. Some States use their own marketplace. So, um, it's very difficult to get one data source that shows all of the plans in each state. And what even complicates it even more is that not all plant, the marketplace in the state isn't the only place you can buy health insurance. So some plans like for example, blue cross blue shield regents, blue cross blue shield here in Utah aren't available in the marketplace. You have to go directly to regents to get them. So those plans aren't available in the marketplace. So 
what leg up health one one tool uh, I envision leg up health building at some point is the ability to see all plans available in your zip code, regardless of whether they're on marketplace or off marketplace. And then once you pick your plan and make the right decision on the plan, you you know you we 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 figure out how to get you enrolled, whether it's through the marketplace or directly with the insurance company. No one's do, no one does that. There's very there's only one company who sort of does this, and it was launched in 2014. Has been mostly neglected since. And you're sure that's allowed because like Southwest Airlines doesn't want anyone to combine their results with the other airlines, but that's not the case here. It's just that they're not sold on the same platform, which is why you can't search them all. Correct. Yeah. Not, it, most most um, historically health insurance uh, is sort of you go w- what the online experience was, was a one stop shop. You sort of quote and buy tangled up in one because of the complication of enrollment now and the introduction of premium tax credits. It really makes sense to quote and pick a plan and enroll um, at the same time mm-hmm. uh, because to do that, you'd, you'd have to like limit your plan choices because different platforms are necessary for enrollment. So um, that's a new thing with, with the modern day. But the point, my point is that that data source, having that one data source, I found it you know early on in my validation for this business and I didn't really track the source. I just downloaded the file as proof. I could not find the source for the file that I found. So it was like a huge, like scary moment. Um, but I uh, ended up Googling. There's all sorts of um, what, what it's called. There's, there's an acronym in the U.S. called PUF. And if this is not interesting, please tell me to shut up. But it's called, pub, that stands for public use file. So there's, if you go to data.gov, I think it's what it is. Or in my case, it was data.healthcare.gov. Um, there's all sorts of PUF files, PUF files, public use files um, that, you know, the government updates regularly, quarterly usually, and they're available both, both via, you know, export CSV exports and API. And, uh, I found the API that I needed that has, is the source for both on and off exchange plans. Um, and I found it on like some obscure catalog, uh, that said .gov at the end. It's so funny. You know, this is, this is what I think entrepreneurship is or it's a big part of it that I think doesn't get talked about a lot that you know 10 years from now if leg up health is this big success no one's going to remember that there is this kind of crossroads where it's like could Rick find that API that he stumbled upon earlier and just like a week of googling is really what it took to get a breakthrough there totally totally um so yeah that was I, I ran I did I did cartwheels after I found that <laughs> um I'm still not quite over it um, but yeah, that's, those are my updates from past episodes. Do you have any sort of updates? Um, not a ton. I, uh, well, I have updates on what's going forward. Not, not really on past up, uh, episodes, although I guess this sort of actually relates. So, uh, Tuesday we did our CRM coach day of rest, which we do these, uh, twice a year. The CRM coaches are like the customer service team. They all take a day off and do something together. Normally, it's in person today. This week, it was uh, Michael, the kind of manager of the team, dropped little goodie baskets off, and they all did like a video chat. And it was like stuff to make the same cocktail together, and then watch or they played Jackbox games together. So they kind of had a day to hang out, and then all the non-customer service people, which basically means all the programmers, do customer service for a day. Uh, first off, strongly recommend it it's a really good way to like get the support team to bond, but also supports hard. It like, 
it's unfortunate that the way capitalism works is that that is viewed as a more fungible resource. And so they get paid less because maybe arguably they're easier to replace, but it is not easier or less valuable work. It is incredibly difficult. So A, giving them a break is nice, but more importantly, getting all the developers to see like, holy shit, that was a hard day. You know, th- th- these emails and phone calls just kept coming in and there's, you're just like kind of fighting this, this tidal wave of stuff coming in. Uh, it's a really good experience to just remind ourselves like what, what the other side of the company is doing all day. Yeah. Um, it creates empathy for customer service people for sure. Um, mm-hmm. and probably and a lot of respect customer. and for the customer Yeah, and respect. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's funny because uh, the schedule, like uh, Michael scheduled all the developers to, you know, I was on demo duty and then whatever. Uh, he scheduled us the same number of people that the CRM coach team would normally have. It took us until 5.05 p.m. to catch up. So we were behind all day. Uh, and then the next day, the CRM coaches, the professionals come back in and they were caught up at 10.30 a.m. So like they really know what they're doing, you know? <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, did, did, uh, I mean, what is the outcome of doing that in terms of decision making or priorities? Do, do you, when your developers get into the thick of things, do, do you like all of a sudden have more information and you look at your priorities and say, Ooh, now that we have this information, we need to change what we're working on? Maybe a little bit. I'd like to hope it doesn't change too much only because we try so hard to give the CRM coaches a voice and a ton of what we work on is fe- comes from feedback from them. But it is true. There's a difference between someone saying, a customer complained about this, and honestly, I think they're right. I didn't know what to tell them. We don't have a resolution. There's a difference between that versus talking to the customer directly and like you're on the phone with them. And they're just like, you're telling me there's no way to do that. And you're just like, yeah, there's not. Sorry. Um, it does. I don't know that it changes priorities, but it certainly creates motivation to be like, this is not an abstract problem anymore. This is like, I felt bad for the human I was talking to and I want to get this built for them. Hmm. So maybe it's not so much a, a change of priorities now, but more of a, um, a more human uh, a prioritization process next time. Yeah, it's motivation to keep driving us. And I, I guess there are occasionally there's something CRM coaches don't necessarily know which projects will be hard or easy. Sometimes there's something where a developer says, oh, this would be so easy. Mm. And it's like, it's not that it wasn't a priority before. It's that the CRM coaches didn't know how simple it would be. And so they didn't know to push for it. Mm-hmm. And it's a developer here. I, sometimes when I do weekend support, this happens where like a customer asks for something. I'm like, I'm just going to do this right now. Like rather than telling them, no, I'll spend 30 minutes and then tell them yes. So that's rare, but it does happen. Mm, yeah. That's interesting. But the, how often, how often do you do that? So we've, we normally do it once a year, but we, we recently switched to twice a year. I think that's a pretty good pace for it. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I bring that up, first of all, I just, it's an interesting thing to do, but, uh, I mentioned either last week or the week before this demo desk tool that I kind of built this like login flow for. Um, this was my first time using it. So demo desk is basically a replacement for, uh, we were using join me. A lot of companies would use zoom something to like have a screen sharing call with a customer. Demo desk is specifically for giving demos as the name suggests. And it's not like wildly different. Like at the end of the day, you're sharing a screen, but there, there are just so many little tiny improvements that they added that, you know, generic screen sharing is not really built for giving a customer a demo. It's more built for what we're doing right now, like a video chat. 
uh, it was just a really great experience. So shout out to Demo Desk. I think they're a pretty new company, like maybe like scarily new. Like I'm worried, will they last? But for as long as they're there, I'm, I'm really happy with it. Well, maybe that's something that um, would be a nice uh, acquisition for less annoying CRM if it doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I actually have been thinking like, should we try to integrate with them? Because I think there's something interesting about identifying I think they're going to be a star. And we actually, Front was the same way. We weren't this early with Front, but we were pretty early. And we knew there's something here. If you like find a company that's a rising star, I do. I think it's a good idea to say, is there some way for me to hitch myself to this? Um, building an integration with Demodesk, I don't think we're probably the perfect fit, but it's at least crossed my mind. Um, what about like, like you, you mentioned, I'm, I'm interested in kind of just picking this a little bit further. Yeah, sure. I mean, do you like you, you mentioned that they're early and they may not, you know, make it, which is true of every early stage business. Um, have you ever like thought about scouting and watching companies like that? And, uh, you know, in the downside scenario, being a, a potential exit opportunity for those uh, founders? I've daydreamed about it. I, I should say they just raised a series A of like 2.8 million. So they're not going out of business anytime soon, but, um, I, I distrust venture capital, but generically, uh, I've put a little thought into this. I think it would be very hard for it to work for less annoying CRM because you're effectively buying probably the customers is the main thing you're getting. Not, not so much the tech in most cases. Do you agree with that? I don't know. I, I feel like there could be some niche tech things that you could buy where you get an employee um, plus the know-how plus the skeleton of a something you could integrate into the platform that um, you uh, maybe pay a small amount for um, yeah. or put it on like some sort of earnout, And, uh, you know, because you buy it, you, you now, you know, have a, an add-on feature into your product that, um, you know, increases your revenue per customer. So I think in our specific case, like very few of the product things we want are primarily constrained by technology and getting getting someone else's tech even if it worked from day one the work of integrating it into what we have and supporting it and figuring like it's probably in a different programming language and i it'd be hard for less annoying serum to justify that i think that doesn't mean that's the case for every company what about what if what if the app solved a distribution problem yeah that's that's the one i've more thought about which i think is pretty appealing what i wonder is because we're so low priced is a user to us ever worth enough that we win a bidding war compared to our competitor where the user's worth so much more? But it has occurred to me, we talked the other day about like the PPP money. Um, for the first time ever, we have hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. That's not enough to buy a big company. But if if some other CRM company went out of business and they were just like, we've got you know 10,000 customers that need somewhere to go, I'd... I don't know how it works. I know nothing about that world, but the thought has crossed my mind. Do you, do you think that's worth like actually being proactive about? I think um, I, I read a little bit about it over the last nine months, um, and I, I've watched sort of some interact some some exchanges happen um, through people who are willing to share. And I just I think that there are some interesting uh, side projects that don't have any revenue models that end up getting a lot of usage, but ultimately get abandoned that if you can f you know, find them at the right time um there's a there, there's a small it's a it's not like a it's not like a i you know it's not like hubspot buying you know some tool like front but like it's it's uh it's 
it's it's a smaller version of that where you've got you know a bunch of small businesses in in the tourists you know hospitality industry um, that are using this free tool that um, you would immediately get access to by acquiring maybe it's a fifty thousand dollar transaction um, yeah and you, you keep you keep the tool alive um, you know as part of the agreement and uh, and and you brand you rebrand it you know subbrand it less annoying CRM or something. Yeah, I guess that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it. That's almost like a uh, like shortcutting a freemium offering. Almost, it's like th- this thing can't survive on its own, but it's a pretty small amount of money for us to keep it alive. If we can then use that to promote our own products, that, that's an interesting idea. I wonder yeah, what it would be. The interesting analogy for this, I uh, I, I might butcher this, um, but uh, the, have you ever heard of the book Loon Shot? Loon Shots. Uh, apparently it's a really popular business book from 2019 i read an excerpt from the book this morning and i'm gonna include it in my uh personal i send a newsletter out every sunday from ricklinquist.com I'll, I'll include this excerpt in it but the guy talks about um well, the guy quoted in the book i can't remember who it was someone at pixar um talks about um ugly ducklings and beasts um and beasts are your 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 sort of systems that are working and ugly ducklings are your ideas um, and they, they, they need to coexist. Like if you, if you, um, if you are just ugly ducklings, you don't have a whole lot of room for failure because you, you don't have a beast supporting you. But if you're, uh, you know, if, if you're just a beast and you don't have any ugly ducklings, um, you risk, you know, kind of withering and, uh, and becoming stale and dying. Yeah. Um, and I, I look at you as like your, your ugly duckling was less annoying Syrian, but now it's kind of turned into your beast. And at some point you're going to need to add ugly ducklings. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what are those ugly ducklings? That's interesting. I, I have a topic for later, or maybe we can just dive into it right now, but it very, very nicely segues into that. Although real quick, before we do that, the, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking through what would an acquisition be more like what you described versus what I described was a competitor is going out of business and we want their customers. What you described is there's this product that doesn't, re- didn't really have a revenue model, but it's kind of sort of related. You know, I bet a business card scanner right now has got to be dying. No one is handing off business cards right now. And most of them don't have a revenue model anyway, because there are so many free ones, no one will pay for it. But if we could get a business card scanner and say, oh, by the way, push this button and all your everything you scan goes into less annoying CRM. Is that the type of thing you uh, had in mind here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Okay. I'll have to put some thought into that. Um, yeah, go well, ahead and segue. I- Okay, so I was going to save this till the end because it's a brand new idea that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate it well because it I've been noodling on it for a while. Last night I had a one-on-one with my brother slash co-founder, but I think it's I've got enough of an idea. I'll try my best to articulate it. So we've been talking about last night we were talking about just what is our product, where does it fit in the world, and like let's try and come up with a framework that will help us decide where to go with it because we have a million ideas. I, I've never understand people who are like, I want to start a business, but I don't have any ideas. I, I have like 500 things I want to build, but you can only really build one. And so we're trying to figure out, we've got the one, like you said, the beast, or it's maybe a partial beast. Um, where do we go? Which, which of these directions do we follow? So we wanted to come up with a framework for that. One thing I was, there are a lot of different thoughts floating around, but one thing I did is I was looking around at like, our customers are very unsophisticated, low tech people. And what we've always kind of done is let them use 
tech that otherwise would have been un- unaccessible to them due to complexity. And so, but that was 10 years ago and CRMs 10 years ago are very different from now. So I was kind of thinking, well, what do, what do sophisticated people do now versus 10 years ago? And something that stands out to me that a lot of people like you do that our customers could never possibly do themselves is you basically find all these separate tools and duct tape them together with Zapier or these no-code tools. Everyone I know who's like a good entrepreneur in the tech space has like this whole stack of things. And my customers just can't do that, um, I think. So we were kind of thinking, well, how do we make that accessible to our customers? And one thing that occurred to me was, what if we think of Less Annoying CRM as a few different products, instead of one CRM product, it's a few interconnected, much simpler things. It's contacts, calendar, tasks, pipelines. And hopefully one day we add some other stuff to that. What I was thinking is, what if we built basically Zapier between our own products to say, you take an action in Less Annoying CRM and that triggers some other thing somewhere else in the product. I don't think our customers are ever going to set up Zapier effectively. It's so complicated. But we could do that for them and make it like doable. And then if that worked, we could, if you continue fault, like going down the rabbit hole, that could inform what our next things should be. It's like, what are the workflows that are currently enabled to you, Rick Lindquist, with Zapier? We need to build the, the connection, but we also need to build whatever actual like database CRUD app the stuff gets stored in after the workflow automation happens. Anyway, that was very rambly, but what do you think? I mean, what I heard was basically um, w- apply what you did with... I think you kind of... It felt like the first part where you broke the... the Quick feedback. I think the first part of the conversation where you broke out your products is somewhat unnecessary to describe the idea. You basically looked at um, Salesforce years ago and said, this isn't accessible to most small businesses. And you built a small business version of that. It sounds like you want to build as a small business version of Zapier. Well, I I don't want to build a small business version of Zapier that connects. I don't think it's possible to build something like Zapier that relies on a million third-party unconnected apps. That's my kind of thesis here. I I don't think... It's not that Zapier is a bad product. It's that... If you use one thing for you know your contacts and a different calendar and a different thing for web forms and have to connect them all together, no product could be good enough to get my customers to do that effectively. But I feel like that's the same thing you said with Salesforce with the CRM is like Salesforce a small business Salesforce is too much for a small business a small business and I'm going to take away a ton of features and flexibility in order to build a uh, CRM that is actually useful to a small business. Um, and and if you apply that same thing to any like any other space uh, that I'll use your term sophisticated uh, technical users or business users are are taking advantage of you could you could look at Zapier you could look at other um, like Trello like Kanban um, and and figure out how to make that more accessible to a, a less sophisticated user and most of the time that's going to be removing f- uh, features. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be, uh, and most of it's going to be removing flexibility, optionality. I agree with that. Yeah. But I, again, I think like the, the goal is not to replace the feature that Zapier offers. The goal is to do replace the job to be done, to do the job. Right. 
And I think one, maybe this isn't the only way, but one way to do that is to say the the reason the job, the reason it's so much simpler to use is because this job is being done within one product ecosystem rather than 15 interconnected things. Totally. Totally agree. Okay. Um, yeah, well, your core job to be done is to bring, uh, is to make, uh, the way that we're talking about it right now is to, is to make, uh, to build a bridge, uh, to sophist- sophisticated apps, uh, for small businesses to provide access to sophisticated well, technology, uh, to, to provide limited access to sophisticated technology to unsophisticated users. That's, that's like very broadly, yes. But like, what, what is Zapier doing that we might replace? And I, I want to be, I'm not like really saying Zapier specifically, but what is this thing that sophisticated users can do? I think that it, this didn't even exist in 2009 when we started, is this idea that I'm going to take an action and something's automatically going to happen on my behalf, whether it's in the same tool or a different tool. It's this like ability to automate. I've actually regularly, customers have called me up and said, why should I use you and not someone else? And I've been like, because we don't have automation, because that's too complicated for you. Now I'm thinking, is there a way to build automation that is accessible and kind of solves the same problem that you'd be solving with this duct tape together solution? But it's it's much simpler, like you said, way fewer options, but it's like easy within our platform. So yeah, if you fly down uh, from that core, it's like, hey, how do we how do we make building uh, individual automations? Um, yeah. Uh, accessible to an, an, an unsophisticated user or to a less annoying CRM user. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, you kind of said maybe, or maybe I misinterpreted you, but like, maybe we just need to go build a simpler Zapier. But I do think like I need to be building off of the the beast that we already have because it's such a huge advantage. And I think that like someone else listening to this could be like, I'm going to go copy that and make a simple Zapier, but they're not going to have the, we already have 22,000 people using context calendar tasks, pipelines, where it's really just about making that product work better. Yeah, exactly. I, and what you're really doing here is you're, you're, I mean, I, I would, I would hope that this is coming from maybe you've identified, you've observed some problems with your users or some opportunities with your users, but there's probably some subset of your users who by helping them, you know, take advantage of Zapier-like automation, um, you can add a lot of value to them and potentially charge them more money. Yeah. To your point of like, have we observed the problem? This has been kind of grating at me for a long time as like a lot of people, a lot of companies, we tend to like build features. And I wanted to get more workflow focused, more like it's not about what's the next feature to build? It's like, this is why we focused on travel agents recently. So we just have to pick someone and say, how exactly do they get their work done? Can we build something for that? And I think this is a a riff on that is to say, the feature is, this is where you store contacts. This is where you store tasks. This is where you store pipelines. The workflow is the layer on top of it, which is how do we connect these together with this automation? And so I really like that framework. I think, again, I'm still working through this, but the idea that we need to build enough features that there's something to connect with workflows, but the real value that we're providing is that workflow layer on top of it. Do you do you buy that? Um, I didn't get that the first time you said it. Let me make sure I, I follow. Um, ultimately, um, the business owner is using your CRM currently to get something done within their workflow. Um, contacts are one part of that. Pipelines are another part of that. Um, calendar, I think is another one. Mm-hmm. Email and is it, And what, what was the other one? Tasks is a task. Yeah. Ta- yeah. Check. Yeah. Tasks. 
Um, so it's practice. You're, you're trying to get up to the productivity level. Like we are productive, a productivity tool. I guess that's what you are. Um, but yeah, I see, I guess, um, and where would the automate, what is the automation layer? Like, how does that fit in? I'm, I'm kind of visualizing it as if this is the workflow layer, like mm-hmm. one, one line at the top and you, you go, Oh, I'm working. I need, I need to save a contact. I'm kind of moving off of that. What, what does the autom- how does the automation fit within that visual? I think the the automation layer is the workflow layer. Like, you, ah, th- I'm viewing these are, man- the these are manual. These are manual um, uh, workflows happening right here. But at any point in time, some manual things happening, and maybe there's an opportunity for a user to self to, to, to decide, hey, I don't want to do this manual anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think all the features we've built thus far, they're CRUD apps. It's like, in, click a form, fill out a form to create a contact, fill out a form to create a task. Uh, edit this pipeline to change the status. And I'm thinking there's a a higher layer above it that, yeah, the way you phrase it, uh, thank you, it's exactly right. This layer already existed. The workflow layer already existed, but it was being done manually by our customers. So the new idea is to replace the customer effort workflow with automations so where, that it where, happens anyway. And where it makes sense to do it. And pro- right, in, it's in not going to replace everything. Yeah. And in your case, you have to protect the user from themselves of not doing a bad doing bad automations. HubSpot tried this and actually did a decent job of it with marketing automation. Um, there might be a good case study to look at. I think they ultimately overcomplicated it for a small mm-hmm. business, um, but they've got some cool... Um, they might be one uh, sort, of, sort of comparison to look at like how they did this, um, but I think they left too much. They, they're, they're an example of where there's too much flexibility, yeah. um, but they, they, all their automations have to do with HubSpot feature, like the workflow within HubSpot. What you, what, what you use HubSpot to accomplish, they allowed you to like massively automate. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I'm going to keep working through this and I might bring it up again in a future episode, but um, I appreciate your thoughts on it. I think already I have a little more clarity here, but um, sorry, what Salesforce- I like about Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm still I'm still processing. Yeah, um, great, great. The uh, more you got. S- uh, Salesforce has this too. Um, so I was a system admin. Uh, at I, I was basically the senior system admin for the C- Salesforce instance at Zane Benefits, as you recall. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a they literally had a se- there's a section of the system admin. I don't know if it's still called this, but it's called workflows, and you can actually create automated things based on actions. Um, way, but but yeah, like. To, to, to make that happen in Salesforce required a significant knowledge of the underlying like structure of Salesforce. Um, and so like the challenge seems like, how do you do this in a way that is very simple? I don't know. I can't think of anyone who's done this in a simple way within the app without you realizing that you're like, without it being overly complicated. But what's interesting is Zapier has done a more simple version just not within an app. So I'm wondering if like there's another level down that's simple like Zapier, but not complicated by the fact that it's a million different apps and we can actually make it native to the experience. HubSpot called had a thing called recipes. And what they That's exactly the word I've been thinking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and so that they had the they had the core tool that they exposed um, to the users, um, which I loved. And then they had recipes that you could just sort of like you know, oh, automatically update the lead score on a lead, um, and you hmm. you doubt you could implement the recipe and then edit it. Um, it seems like more on the recipe side, less on the open ended side, is what you're going for. Well, yeah. What I had it again. I've been thinking about this for one day, but I started drawing up some mockups this morning. I was thinking it's a recipes 
analogy where we say, here's our 10 most popular ones. That's good enough for like, just check this box to enable this recipe or go build your own recipe. Yep. And your challenge is going to be keeping it simple on the, on the recipe building. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. that was, I, HubSpot did not do a good job of that. Um, uh, for a, for your user, but for, for their user, they did a really, really good job of it in my mm. opinion. You know, it's so funny. HubSpot and Salesforce are our two biggest competitors or not. They don't view us that way, but like they're the two biggest CRMs out there. You'd think I'd know that they have this stuff, but our customers are in such a different world. Nobody is coming in and saying, I want to replace HubSpot's recipe system, you know? <laughs> no, no. That's funny. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I appreciate your thoughts here, but I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. I think if we settle on this, we're gonna, it's going to give us so much clarity around which features to prioritize. Even aside from, there's building the automation itself, but this also says to me, our tasks have to be better because they're not good enough. That we don't have a minimum viable product of tasks yet for the automation to hook into them effectively. Yep. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I guess my, my only caution on this would be that um, the, the, the users who, who will use this are going to quickly want more than mm-hmm. what you offer. And they're also the people who probably are, are more likely to leave you for Salesforce or HubSpot. So you could be, you could be building this for the non-ideal customer. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. It, that's, that's a very good point. If we nail it, what would happen is there's a whole set of people who aren't asking for this because they don't even know about it. And now all of a sudden their world has been open to this opportunity. But I totally agree with you. The people who are asking for it are probably not the people we should be listening to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, any other updates on your end? Let's see. Oh, I, I, uh, uh, so V1, I released V1 of leg up health, uh, this week or last week I've onboarded. I've been, I've every user, every beta user and client now has a actual login. Um, I've sent those logins out to everyone. Not everyone has actually reset their password and logged in for the first time, uh, but maybe half have. Uh, but you know, I've got a couple like tidy things to do to finish up v- what I would what I put in that um, press release thing that we did for what the requirements are for V1. Mm-hmm. One, um, but it's almost done. So next week I should be uh, shifting my focus to customer acquisition and getting to that fifty uh, client milestone. Um, so, uh, but, but I did want, like, one of the things that I've had a really hard time, I don't, I don't know if you have a solution for this is I need a, you know, a reliable, um, voicemail inbox that basically, you know, rings a couple, allows me to ring my phone a couple times, but not like ring a bunch, um, and then go to a voicemail if I don't pick up right away and tell like, you know, Hey, this is, you've reached leg up health, you know? to get for fastest service, text us at this number or email us, blah, 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 leave a message. And then you know, be able to e- email that voicemail into our support inbox. Um, I, st- I went through AirCall, which was clearly like the, the front runner for this type of solution. And I, I went through their free trial. I saw their their pricing at 40 bucks or 45 bucks a month. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll pay for that. I'm willing to pay 45 bucks a month for this. I got everything set up, set up the voicemail thing. It was working great. And then my free trial comes up and I click into like, put it in and they're like minimum of three users. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, what was I, what I thought was a $45 product for my use case is turned into a $150 product for my use case. If I pay annually. Um, God, I hate, yeah. So I hate all these companies that are like, my least favorite is when they, they show you a monthly price and they're like, you have to pay annually. It's like, that's just lying. You just lied. (laughs) 
Yeah, and then um, and then you add in the minimum users. Um, yeah, and it was on. Like I went back to the pricing page, and it's on there. But if you just look at the pricing page and you don't look at the details, it doesn't say that. So um, I was pretty pissed. Um, but it was like uh, not pissed. Pissed is the wrong word. I I was like I was like they got you again, Rick. You know, it was kind of like shame on me. You know, fool me once, uh, shame <laughs> on you. You know, you fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, and I um, I, but I I'm like done with them now. Like I. Like even if even like at that point, even if they said like oh, I'll give you one user, just that whole experience of like, I just won't go with them now. So um, I'm mad at Aircall. Can I push back on that because yeah. you're channeling your inner Tyler here? Like yeah. getting really mad at someone's annoying business practices and rage quitting is my instinct. The, and I've done this plenty of times before. The problem is whatever company you end up going with has the same annoying <laughs> practice. It just didn't trick you that time. Yep. There's no good company out there. I know. I know. I, I, I And I'm saying it mostly just because I'm a little still, I'm, I guess I am a little upset about it. Um, but I had my problem solved. So then I, my problem wasn't solved. So I was like, okay, I'll go look at Google Voice. Um, I, so I I already used my personal like Gmail for my Google Voice. I don't want to lose that. So I, w- I set up Google Voice for like a Pelt, the app. And oh my freaking God, it was so hard to enable Google Voice for my domain. I finally did it. It's $10 per month per user. I get it enabled. And now like I'm running into an error setting up the phone number. And I've been at this for 48 hours now. So well, am, you can't have two Google Voice numbers pointing at the same cell phone. Is that part of it? I know I can even like, you know, you, when you first set up Google Voice, it says, what number do you want? I keep choosing uh, the number and it goes, oh, we've run into an error. So anyway, I'm, I'm beyond frustrated with this. All I want is a voice, like I want a phone number that rings my mobile phone twice and then goes to voicemail if I don't answer. That's what I want. Yeah. Where Google can I get Voice this? is like abandoned, I think. I, I, uh, have you considered, like, I get that you want something very simple, simple but have you considered something like R- Ring Central where it's it's not meant to do what you need, but like what you need is a one small part of what it does? Um, I had Ring Central at the last business I was at. But it was such a pain. I, I kind of went away from them because they required a salesperson like to mm, buy, yeah. and it's like I don't want to deal with anyone. I liked Aircall because it was like promising self serve free trial. I self served the whole thing, and then I didn't buy it because it was like a three times the price I thought it was going to be. So yeah, I'm Ugh. like, I, I guess I could look at Ring Central, but is there not like someone out there who's like, hey, this is a simple phone number that rings your cell phone as many times as you want to for as many seconds as you want to, and then goes to voicemail? Like, seems like. I, I mean, these must exist. I The reason do I you, don't know this, we have a homemade system, of course. You use Twilio? <laughs> we use Twilio, yeah. yeah. Um, which I actually, in retrospect, don't love. The reason I built it is we were thinking about building it into the CRM. We we're going to offer this as a product to customers, so we just dog-fooded it ourselves. Um, ended up not doing that, but we're still using that system. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm not going to build a Twilio app. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, absolutely not. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's like a million little bootstrapped companies out there that are effectively just wrappers around Twilio where like Twilio is still powering everything, but they just kind of handle the the call routing for you. Yeah, maybe I need to look at Ring Central here and just go one user, $29 per month, pay monthly. Oh, no, it's $39 per month. Start like when I first came to the site. Okay, they, they did the same thing. Yeah, every right. every SaaS company does this. They I, all say, lie. I was like, oh, it's nineteen dollars ninety nine cents per use per month, and then I look up, it's like, oh, number of users two to nineteen. I have to click back to one. That increases it to twenty nine dollars per month. Then I click the the little thing. Oh, it's on annually. 
I click it back to monthly. Now I'm up to 40 bucks a month, which is what I thought I was paying for air call. This actually solves my problem at the price I was willing to pay. So cool. Well, I'd love to hear how it is. Cause if we were going to switch, I've, I've looked at ring central, I haven't used it, but if it's, I know they're, they've got the same annoying practices as everyone else, but if it works, I'd, I'd love to know. Yeah. I'll let you know if I decide to go that way. Cool. What else do you have? Um, None of this is pressing, so some of it can we can save for later. But one, did you uh, see the news that like a handful of tech companies recently have kind of announced remote work is more? They're not saying necessarily they're going fully remote, but anyone who wants to can can go remote. So Twitter's doing this. Shopify did something like this, and Facebook just earlier today announced something like this. Do you remember when Yahoo um, was? had this and then Marissa Mayer, whatever her name was, went in and said, no, we're not going to do this anymore. You have to come to the office and how pissed Yahoo people were. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is the world just going to oscillate back and forth? I don't know. Like, I feel like, I feel like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it makes sense to allow people to work from home. I don't today, like, I don't know what it was like. I don't know why she well, made that today. Decision. Yeah. I, I, but I, w- let's imagine five years from now. So th- to be clear, these companies are not saying while c- they're not extending their COVID response to say for the next two years, they're saying indefinite, like this is permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more complicated than just saying, let anyone who wants to work from home forever, because that does have big impact on company culture and stuff. I think what's more interesting about this is less about whether or not people should work from home forever or not forever, or, you know, it's, it's why, why, you know, it's a good idea to just make it a certain decision because it gives people like peace of mind that not, they're not going to go through change anytime soon. So like, even if I thought that I might not want to be remote in five years, I think it's worth saying to people right now, we don't know how long COVID-19 is going, going to last and remote is working for us. We're gonna be. Re- we're gonna try being a remote first company indefinitely. I don't see any downside in that. I think it's hard to go back on that. I think it's very hard. It, that's not. They're not saying we're gonna be remote and then we'll reevaluate when this is over. They're saying, like, you can move and leave, and that's very hard to pull back. You know. The only reason that they would ever change that is it didn't work, and people would understand that. So, like, yeah, you know, I, I see people no downside. People didn't understand it at Yahoo. Well, yeah, but that wasn't because it, well, there's a whole lot of, I don't know enough about that to comment on it. I'll just, I'll just say that, um, I think, you know, for, for a company with sound leadership to say right now, don't worry about coming back to work indefinitely. That's a good business decision. It's good for employees. Um, and you know, even if it gets changed in the future, it's not like, you know, for the right reasons, it's, it's like. I, it's better than just sitting on this and saying, let's, let's reevaluate in a month. Let's reevaluate in a month. Let's reevaluate in a month. No, but th- I, I think that's a false choice. Like the choice is, you know, you can go remote for a year and a half or remote forever. Like they were already, they'd already announced remote through the end of the year and could have easily extended it another six, 12 months. It wasn't a month by month thing. I know some companies are doing that. Some companies are like delusional thinking that this is going to be over in a month, but this is them saying rather than us, they're like announcing rather than just being remote until the end of this, we are already making the decision we're going to stay this way. And I'm just saying a lot of people are going to move and they are not going to be like, well, it's good leadership. This didn't work. I guess I have to 
sell my house and move back to the Bay Area and move my family, they're not going to yeah. be okay with that. Yeah, yeah, and I, it's unlikely that they'll go back. But I, I see, I see very little downside in saying, "Hey, let's embrace COVID and work, move forward as a company," because there is no end in sight um, at this point. Because, oh, I agree. Yeah, I don't and, think that's what they're doing. But what's the upside? in doing this rather than saying we're, we're definitely staying remote until this whole thing's over and then we'll, we'll reevaluate it at that time. Like, what do they get out of this? That's a fair question. I, I think uh, they get employee peace of mind and people able to go live their lives with certainty rega- within, without independent ind- of work certainty, independent of COVID. Um, yeah. It comes at a cost maybe of like, if this doesn't work, they have to, you know, maybe ruin people's lives, but the good companies aren't going to do that. Yeah. So I'm, I, I, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens among other things. Commercial real estate's just going to get hammered. Well, it's, it's not just that it's, it's, I, I, I love talking about this stuff by the way. Um, so it's not just commercial real estate. It's also home buying preferences, um, in terms of like zip code, state city, mm-hmm. um, r- rooms, like house design land, like, why would I want to live downtown if I'm working remotely? I'm sorry, but like downtown is like, I love downtown to a degree, but I would much rather live at a, on a lake, right? I, why don't I live on a lake right now? Because the closest lake is one hour away from commerce and airports. Uh, and, and now it's like, well, if I don't, if I could do remote things, if people are going to go remote on things, I now the cost of, of not living in a downtown area, um, or a, or a you know suburb is what or what do you call those uh, urban area is is so much less. Mm-hmm. For for some people, if you want to live on a lake, then that's absolutely true. Um, I think a lot of people like the the counter argument to that. A lot of people get a lot of their socialization at work, and if they're not getting that, living in a suburb could be torture for someone who's an extrovert. They're young. They are not married yet. I could see a lot of people saying, you know what. Before I was fine living in a suburb, commuting into work and having a social life there, I need to live in a city now because that's the only way I'm ever going to see anybody. And maybe not just a city, but like I need to live in a place where it's easy to live with other people, mm-hmm. but also easy to live, you know, to have privacy. And I, that's not how apartments are designed. Like apartments are designed like for like compact, you know, living in the city for work purposes. Like you're not going to be in your in your thing. If I look at like how many how many apartments have a great place for the people who are living in the apartments to get together and socialize with each other or to like have groups of friends move into in together and and share across apartments. Well, that that second one, you're right. That's not a thing. Every apartment building, every big one has like a community space that nobody ever uses, but exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, but I my Yeah, I, we could we could debate playing it out all the time. And I just I, I like arguing about this stuff so I can go on all day. But I think it's really it's gonna be really interesting to see how home buying preferences change um, both location, um, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of like what state, where in the state, you know, and then also like how close to other people, how far away, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, what's uh, you know, what rooms are, are more important now, like an exercise room is increasingly important to me now. Well, but again, I, I guess that's like in the COVID world, that will stop being true at some point. But if 10%, even if it's a small number, if 10% of office workers you know, are now remote, that'll have a ripple effect throughout you know, 
especially downtowns or, or commercial districts. But yeah, you're right. We could talk about it all day. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, and uh, but yeah, that's and I. What do you? Here's a question. Um, what do you think is going to happen with the real estate, the, the residential real estate market? Because Sable and I are by like are borderline buyers right now, um, and we like we feel this is a bad. We aren't sure if this is a good or a bad time to buy. No one's ever sure. But there are so many potential scenarios here. Uh, like, just take a look at like Airbnb right now. Airbnb, yeah. like, if you're a second homeowner relying on Airbnb for income, at some you point, sell, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, right. And then interest, but interest rates are already are, are also really really low right now. So it's like I don't, I just don't know how all these things are going to play out in terms of you know how, whether there's a you know whether there's a lot of foreclosures, defaults, whether there's a lot of you know just getting out, um, selling low price selling. I just have no idea. What are your thoughts? Everything I've, so my intuition is the economy is in ruins right now. I know the stock market's not, but GDP is way down. You'd think housing prices would go down. Apparently lots of people think that, and there's a lot of buyers right now and housing prices haven't gone down. So maybe just nothing changes and this, but I'm still of the opinion that we're in this weird artificially inflated period where between the Fed and the stimulus and collective denial, people are acting like it's life as usual. And I do think that eventually there's going to be a real crash in a way like it kind of crashed in February, but not really. So if I had to guess, and like you said, nobody knows if we knew it would already be priced into the market. So what I'm saying is just pure speculation. I suspect that now is not a good time to buy, but there's a decent chance that six months, 12 months from now is a very good time to buy. And I think the same thing, but I've searched Google and I've like looked, I've looked at a lot of, tried to find, you know, confirmation of that opinion. And it's much harder to find that than, you know, it's a good time to buy right now. I just, I mean, well, let me back up here. One thing I, I'm of the, opinion, I agree with if you're you buying your primary home. I don't think you should time it. The reason to buy is because you want to live in the place, not because you think it's a good, like, I'm going to buy this and it's going to double in value over the next five years. but. But I would just caveat that with, um, I'm a big subscriber, as you know, and this is part of the startup to last mentality of, you know, you want to preserving optionality and preserving your ability to fail is like at the heart of starting Mm -hmm. up to last. And Mm -hmm. I, that applies to home. I, if you apply that to home buying the type of home you can buy in a seller's market, um, versus the type of, for the same price, the type of home that you can buy in a, um, in a buyer's, let's just say a down, down, you know, buyer's market. I don't know what the definitions are there. I'm using those to mean, you know, high price, low price um, is significantly different. And so there's like a, you know, in one scenario, maybe it's not the dream home and the other scenario, it's the absolute dream home. And it becomes really interesting when you think about it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're doing it so you can get a better house to live in, I think that's great. I just know far too many people that are treating it like not even an investment, like speculative investment, like almost gambling. And it's like, your house is not where you want to do this, in my opinion. But totally. anyway, we, we should probably wrap up here. We've been, <laughs> we've been going for a little while. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm, um, I, I love this talking to you about all kinds of random stuff. Um, and it's, so I like talk if, if, if it's interesting to people to talk about non-business things, sometimes I, I love talking, getting your opinion on sort of, predicting the future, even though neither of us should like are probably right. But like, I, I find it very entertaining. So I wonder yeah, if other people same. do too. Cool. All right. Um, 
let me go ahead and sign us off. Hey everyone, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have two favors to ask. First, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. Tyler, I'll see you next week. See ya.